So this time of year, I don't know about you guys, but I love this time of year. I love all of the Christmas everything. Um, I love the lights. I love the smells. Um, there's a couple things probably I, do, I don't like. I, you know, I'm not a fan of eggnog. Um, I don't like the Christmas story movie. Um, uh, there's a few other things like that that, you know, you could probably debate me with. But one of the things that's interesting is, is that some of the words that get used this time of year are very religious. And not just because we're talking about Jesus and it's Christmas, right? Christ's Mass. We're not, it's not just that. But you can go into any craft store and find a whole wall of all sorts of trinkety things, including t-shirts and signs that say, believe, which is pretty amazing, right? Because that's, that's a Christian term, isn't it? It's a word that we use all the time. Christians are called believers, right? There's a whole section in our Bible talking about what belief is versus unbelief. Now, I think most of the time, you know, the, the believe that they're, we're seeing at the craft stores and Hobby Lobby and these other places is believe in the season. One of the signs that I read uh, said, believe in the magic of Christmas season. Um, I was like, okay, that's close. And then, of course, you got the ones that say believe, and it has a Santa Claus hat on there. So they're saying, believe in Santa. You know, it, it's, it's hard to not find a single movie with Santa Claus in it that doesn't talk about the fact that adults don't believe anymore, which always raises the question in my mind, if they all believed in the past and they got everything they asked for, when did they stop believing, right? There's kind of a hole in most of your Santa Claus movies. Sorry if I ruined them for you. But this believing in something, like Santa Claus is powered by the fact that people believe in him, right? The thing about it, though, is, is as serious as people take belief and believing around Christmas and the believing in world peace and believing that things can change, our God takes belief even more seriously than our world does. As a matter of fact, it is the, it, it, believing is similar to the word faith. In the Bible, the word faith is trust in God. It's not blind. It's not, oh, I hope this works out. No, it's trust in God. So believing, faith, trust, they're all the same thing. And so today, we're going to look at this idea of belief versus unbelief. We're going to look at what it means to be a believer versus what it means to be an unbeliever. And so we're going to, we're going to spend some time on this. And, and so that you understand how seriously God takes this, I want us to look at John 20, verse 31. It'll be up on the screen here. And this is what it says. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is saying, we wrote all this down. The Holy Spirit had us write it down. Why? Because Jesus existed. He was here. And we need to know. Because why? Believing in Him leads to life. God has sent His Son. Not so that we have cool holidays. Not so that we have some stories that we can all agree upon. But so that we would believe in Him. That we would trust in Him. That we would have faith in Him. And so today, in our passage, Matthew 13, if you want to turn there if you haven't already, we're going to see that there are two groups mentioned. One group is the group that believes and gets the kingdom, and they get to see the kingdom. They get to experience the kingdom as a treasure. There's another group. This is a group that doesn't believe, 
And they miss out. They miss out on the wonders and ultimately will miss out on eternity. So today what we're going to do is we're going to do two things. We're going to do an anatomy of belief and we're going to do an autopsy of unbelief. So we're going to look at these two things together. So today is our last day in Matthew chapter 13. And we remember that Matthew's 13th chapter is full of parables. These parables are where Jesus takes two things and he puts them side by side to bring out truths of the kingdom. And this week we see our last parable, even though it's kind of hidden, but it's there. And so as Jesus has been teaching these parables, from the first verse in Matthew 13, there's been this constant drumbeat of two. And it's always two as in those who are for me and those who are against me. Then we see that those who are for me, they have eyes and ears that work so they can hear what the kingdom is about. And those that are against him are blind and deaf. He compares those who can hear to wheat. He compares the blind and the deaf to weeds. And then eventually he says the wheat will enter the kingdom of heaven and the weeds will enter into hell. And so he's breaking this down. The entirety of Matthew 13 has been there's two groups of people. And right here at the end, in the, in the uh, incredible way that God weaves everything together, we get to see the two groups right here at the end. We get to see the disciples who clearly go, we get it. And then we see the people that are closest to Jesus who go, we don't want anything to do with this. So let's dig into this. So we're going to look at an anatomy of belief. What's an anatomy? Well, an anatomy is a study of a structure, usually doing something with a body. So we're going to look at the structure of the belief that the disciples have. So what is belief? Belief is a person taking God at his word. It's saying, God, I, I trust what you're saying, and it's right. I put my faith in you. You are my God. So look at verse 51. Jesus asks, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. So what is all these things? What, what is Jesus referring to? Well, we got to go back all the way to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 38. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They will be his disciples shortly. And he says, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then immediately after that, in chapter 10, Jesus calls all of his disciples. Then after that, in chapters 11 and 12, he does some personal training with them. And then chapter 13, he teaches them via parable of what the kingdom's going to be like. So what he's saying is he's saying, I've taught you all this stuff. I have pulled you out. You are my harvesters. Do you understand what is before you? And they say, yes. Now before we get into that, I want to pause for a sec. And, and we have to remember, yes, these disciples, where they're at right now, they understand. But in short order, they're going to show that they don't really understand it yet, Right? So even in this, Jesus being God in flesh, God incarnate, like we were talking about a minute ago, he knew what they were going to do, and yet in this, he's patient with them. Isn't it great that Jesus is patient with us, that he waits on us, that he recognizes that sometimes we're not quite there yet? Because chapter 14, verse 14, the disciples don't get what Jesus just said here. Chapter 16, which we'll get to in February, again, they mess up. And Jesus, though, meets them where they're at because becoming a disciple of Jesus 
is a process. It's not a one and done. You don't pray a prayer and poof, you're magically a disciple and you got it all figured out. You, you commit your life to him and over time you begin to understand it better and better and he begins taking rulership over all of your life. We call that sanctification. We call that growing as a disciple. Charles Spurgeon, which I'm going to warn you, there's going to be a lot of Charles Spurgeon in this message today. More than usual, which is saying something. Spurgeon wrote an incredible sermon on this verse alone, um, about eight pages long, single-spaced, single and it just blew my mind. I had to read it twice. This is what he said about this understanding. Words that, not, words that not touch the understanding glide over us like oil on a slab of marble, without effect. Men may perish with the gospel in their houses. They often do perish with the gospel, even ringing in their ears, for until they understand its importance, it cannot save their souls. See, right where the disciples are at right now, they still haven't got it fully, but they're on the right path. See, what Jesus has been doing is he's been teaching, and the goal is not to educate. The goal is to change. Jesus' purpose is to change people and have them become his disciples, not to educate them so that they're just smarter on their way to where they're going. Now, we're kind of like this, don't we? we? We don't get everything. We don't quite understand all of it. But what the disciples get at this point is that Jesus is their source. Jesus is their treasure. Remember, they've walked away from their lives as they know it and are following a rabbi. And we're, we're, we're very similar to this, right? We, we look at it and we go, yeah, I, I get Jesus. I, I understand Jesus. I understand what he teaches. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But can we say that it's actually, we've actually got it if it hasn't changed us? Now, if you're here today and you call yourself one of Jesus' people, you call yourself a believer, a follower, a disciple, a Christian, whatever term you want to use for yourself, if when you've encountered Jesus, there has been no change, hear me on this, you haven't encountered Jesus. Because when people encounter Jesus, they walk away changed. They don't come in and go, oh, that's nice, I get that, and then go right back to the way they've been. The only proof that you know Jesus is that you are a different person after meeting him. See, if we doubt Christ, that is to say, we think he's truthful and good and strong, and he's a good moral teacher, and he's done all these amazing things, and he's the son of God, and he tells us this is what it's to look like, and we go do something other, are we actually truly believing what we just said with our mouths? Because encountering Jesus is to be changed. I've heard people say, well, you know, I've studied Jesus, I understand what he said, but it's just not for me. And I would say, well, you don't understand it. Because to understand is to be changed. To understand is to go, this has to be for me. Because you'll see how fallen you are and how in need of a Savior you are. And only there, at that point, will you see the change. Sadly, there's going to be a lot of people in this world who know a whole lot about Jesus who are still sitting smack dab in the middle of their sins and are not saved. See, Jesus wants the whole man. And if we look at the disciples over time, we will see other than the Judas, we see that the 11 disciples, they start with understanding. 
It moves into their emotions, and then finally it changes their will. And we see this progression in their lives. Jesus wants all of them. Here, Peter and the disciples say they understand. Later, Peter's emotions are finally fixed on Christ. Remember when Christ reinstates Peter, he says, not, do you believe in me? He says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And then we see Peter, when the Holy Spirit comes into him, is a changed man. And a few weeks after Jesus is murdered, is executed, Peter's in the same spot calling out the Sanhedrin for the murder of Jesus. A 180. Was Peter changed? Absolutely. And this is what God loves to do with believers. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a believer, is to understand what Jesus has done. Now, not fully, but there's still time. To love him with all of our might, maybe not with everything yet, but there's still time. And to follow him completely with obedience because the Holy Spirit is working in us. That's what it means to be a follower of our Lord Jesus. So with this in mind, we go to our final parable. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, out of his treasure what is old and what is new and what is old. New Living Translation says, Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings out of his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. I like that. So we're reading this and we go, okay, wait a sec, hold on. Where do the scribes come in? What, what is this, right? Remember, we talked about how there were Pharisees and scribes, and they're the ones that are always button heads with Jesus. So what is, what is going on here? What, what is Jesus talking about? Well, it starts with that word scribe. That word scribe is the word grammatus in Greek. It's where we, similar to the word grammar. It means one who is a learner or a teacher or an interpreter. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you disciples, because you've been taught by me, are now to be the teachers of the law. You are to be the ones that go and explain it to everyone. So that's all scribes were. Scribes were just interpreters of the Old Testament, which they would have called the law or the Torah. It says, they were scribes who have been trained. That word trained is matheu, which is where we get the word disciple. So Truly what this could be translated as is, now that you are discipled, you are to go and train. Now that you've been trained, you're to go and disciple. It could work either way. Jesus is saying, just like the Jews train up their scribes to go tell people what to do, you all have the complete picture, now go tell them. That's the whole point with the old and the new. And I love it. It says, you're going to be like a master of a house one who owns a mansion. And out of his treasure, this word treasure is the word storeroom, which in the Bible, storeroom is almost always used for heart. And so what it's saying is, is out of your heart, out of the treasures that you have in your heart, you're going to bring out both the old and the new. Jesus is really laying out a manifesto for his disciples of what it looks like to teach. And I love this, finally, this last word we're going to look at here is the word brings out. In the Greek, it's one word. It's an interesting word because it means to throw out or to fling out. Not to throw out because it's bad, but like spreading of seed. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? Because where, where did we start with these parables? We started with the parable of the sower. And the seed is what? sown everywhere on all kinds of soil. And so here he's saying, spread it out, fling it out. 
Take it all out. Show it. Put it out there on display. And why? Back to Matthew 9. We saw it. Jesus looked out and saw that they were harassed and helpless, a sheep without a shepherd. So he says, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So he's saying is these sheep are without a shepherd, which means they're not being led the right direction, which translated means they're going to hell. They're not believing in me. They're going the wrong direction. And without the disciples and without us, how are they going to hear? How are they going to know? The harvest is not going to be pulled in without the laborers. And so the laborers are being recruited here. So spoiler alert, Matthew 28, which we'll get to in like a year or two, right? It says, therefore go, therefore go. We're to go and meet them where they're at. We aren't to huddle together here and hope that they want to come. No, we're to go and to share and to tell. You know, this old and new, I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the best movies ever made. And I'll fight you on that, so... So there's a scary Nazi guy. There's lots of them, but there's this one. He's wearing the black trench coat. He's balding. He's got the glasses, right? And he, uh, he's the guy who, um, they're up in the, up in the uh, Himalayans, right? And, and Indiana's looking for that amulet, yeah, that, that, that his ex-girlfriend is hiding. And they get there, and there's this big fight and all that, and the amulet falls in the fire, and the scary Nazi guy goes up and grabs it, and it's scalding hot, and it burns his hand, Right? And he runs out screaming, and you're like, yeah, you deserve it, Nazi, right? He runs out, and he puts it in the ice, and then, of course, they grab it. And what's on that amulet is the instructions about how to find the ark, right? It's directions. And so the, the Nazis are looking for the ark, and they're digging for the ark, and they have one side of the amulet, so they're digging in this specific spot. But it turns out the amulet on the second side has more instructions that tell them to dig in the right place. So the Nazis are digging in the wrong place, and Indiana and his friends are going to go dig in the right place. So we look at that and we go, that's what it's like for us as Christians without the Nazis. But it's like that, isn't it? We have both sides of the amulet. We have the full picture. We have, here is what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which I hate that it's called old, all right? It's not old as in get rid of it, as it's a classic. It's what we have to have. Because if we don't have it, the new makes no sense. And so those two together become what we see in the Bible taught. We see the whole thing. Every time after Jesus' resurrection that he or an angel or one of the disciples meets with somebody, they explain them the whole Old Testament with the Jesus parts filling in, making sense of everything. So don't skip your Old Testament because the Old Testament is what really sets up the New Testament and makes sense of the New Testament. And so these, these, these disciples are to bring both out and they're to scatter them everywhere and let everyone know what the truth is. Charles Spurgeon once said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and village and hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is always a road that leads to London? So it is true with Scripture that there is a road that leads to the great metropolis known as Jesus. And so this Old Testament is pointing forward. That's their old treasure. The new treasure is what they're experiencing right now with Jesus, and they're laying it out there, and they're going, oh, this is it. 
We have the Christ key. It makes sense of everything. No more silencing them because now they have the truth. They know more than the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees only have one side of the amulet. They only have one side of the explanation. We have both. Now, I did say earlier, when we were in verse 51, that if you encounter Jesus, you come away changed. And some of you might have said, okay, I don't, I don't see it in this passage, Pastor John. Let me show it to you in 52, because 52 is where we see it. Jesus says, these uneducated, unimportant, unvalued men are now the highest echelon of all of the people in Israel, the scribes. He's saying, not only that, but you are masters of a house. That word house means a palatial house. This is a palace. And in this palace is treasure. So these men that have nothing, that were literally getting fish so that they could survive, right? These are the ones that he says, you are now, you're up here, you're different, you're totally changed. You go from having nothing to having loads and loads of treasure to give out. So this is the change that we see. So now, for those of us in the room that would say we are believers or that we are Christians, we need to understand there's two subgroups within that. So if you're here today and you're going, I'm a Christian, I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian, this, this is what I believe. And I would say there's two groups. The first group is the group that says, yes, I know Jesus, I know a lot about him. As a matter of fact, I have claimed him, and maybe I've made some changes in my life, maybe I've decided I'm not going to do certain things, I'm not going to watch certain things, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to tithe, I'm going to do things like that. But there is no radical change. There's not that moment of conversion. There's not that moment of turning a 180. Think of the Apostle Paul. He's on his way to Damascus to murder Christians, to lock them in prison. And he gets a complete 180 in an instant. This is the conversion that the Lord wants to do in each and every one of us. So I'd say if you're here today and that's not something that you've ever experienced and you're still battling through the sins in your life, and you're not experiencing the joy that you, are, you should be experiencing, stop right now and go, Lord, I confess that I don't have this. Give it to me. And that same generous God that sent his son for those who would believe in him and those who would not believe in him, that generous God will generously meet you, and you can walk away changed today. Whether you've sat in church for 50 years or this is your first time. That change must happen. It's not a prayer. It's not magic words. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural act. The second group of you, you've experienced that. You know what that's like. You've, you've had that change. You love Jesus with all you are. You, you know it. Your life matches up to it. You've been born again from death to life. You have treasures to share. So ask yourself, are you sharing them? Are, is, it, is it being laid out there? Is it, would you say that your treasures are getting a little sprinkle or are they being thrown out to the people around you? This is the perfect time of year to talk about Jesus. I mean, we have a holiday that's named after him and people who totally don't get what it's about. So what a perfect time to invite someone to our Christmas Eve or our Christmas Day service. Now, just because you invite them here doesn't mean that what I'm going to say is going to save them. That's not the way it works. But it opens up doors where you 
can talk to them about Jesus. We've got little flyers out there, invites. Take as many as you want. We'll print up more. And invite anyone and everyone you can think of. Invite the person at the gas station that pumps your gas. Because here's the thing. You have treasure. Not that you have some trinkets. Not that you have a few little nice, pithy things to say. You have treasure. And if you realize that, if you truly see what Jesus has done on the cross for you, and it has completely changed you, you are the richest person on the planet. Give it away. What a perfect time to do that. So Jesus encourages these disciples. I'm encouraged by the fact the disciples are not perfect. Their faith, though it's meek, not fully formed, maybe they take steps backwards, he's still pushing them forward and saying, be more like me. However, the second part of our passage deals with those who will not listen. And sadly, these are the people that are closest to Jesus from those who've known him the longest. Look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his, Mary, his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not also his sisters with us? When, where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So we're going to perform an autopsy now. An autopsy is a post-mortem, which probably doesn't help. That means after death. And we're going to say their death potentially before their life. We're going to do an examination of why these people are dead. Why is it that they're dead? So what, why, why would we use the word autopsy here? I mean, they're not really dead. They're walking around. They're talking. We see tons of alive people who do not know Jesus. However, Ephesians 2 tells us they're the walking dead. They're those who are not alive. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you, so he's talking to the Ephesians who are now believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So the way Paul sees the world, which is the way that Jesus explained the world, is that everyone is dead in their sins. They just don't know it yet. They're dead in their sins. And then when Christ comes, Christ comes into your life, and you are changed, you go from death to life. Is there any greater distance? Is there a diff a, a, any greater comparison between somebody who is dead and somebody who is living? You see the change there? It's completely different. They're not the same. They may look somewhat similar, but a dead body and a living body are dramatically different. So what does unbelief mean? Well, belief, again, is trusting God, taking Him at His word. Unbelief is deciding not to take God at His word. It's not relying on his promises. Notice, it's not that you cannot believe, it's that you choose not to believe. Unbelief is a decision to not acknowledge what is apparent. Now this may not, we may use the word disbelief, we throw that in there sometimes, but disbelief is like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe that happened, that was amazing, right? 
That's more of a startled thing. Unbelief and belief are the only two categories that the Bible has. There's no word for disbelief. It's either you believe or you don't believe. There's no in-between. Thomas Watson wrote, Of all sins, beware of the rock of unbelief. Men think as long as they are not drunkards or swearers that it's no great matter to be an unbeliever, meaning they're good. So what does it matter if they don't believe? This is the gospel sin. It disparages Christ's infinite merit as if it would not save. It makes the wound of sin to be broader than the plaster of Christ's blood. This is high contempt offered to Christ, and it is a deeper spear than the one that was thrust into his side. So this unbelief, why is this unbelief such a big deal? Because what you're saying is what Jesus came to do didn't matter. What you're saying is Jesus is coming and dying on the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath in our place doesn't matter. It's worthless. It's valueless because you're saying it's not for me. This analyzing of your unbelief, you must remember as we look at this, Christians, believers that are in this room, notice sometimes we are a lot like the unbelievers. And recognize that unbelief is sin and we confess it. He is faithful and just to forgive us. So as we go through this autopsy, let the Lord work on you and say, okay, I, I, I do that sometimes. I, I need to repent. And if you're here and you're not a believer and you're going, that's me, same thing, repent. So the, this, this group here is the city of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And really, if we want to tie it back to the beginning of 13, this is a stony ground, isn't it? It's ground covered with stones. The seeds don't penetrate. Not a single person comes to Christ from Nazareth. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. There was Capernaum, and now he's moving into his hometown. Verse 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. That's the place that the Jews would meet on Saturdays for Bible teaching. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? This word astonished has come up over and over again. It means to be amazed at Jesus. This seems like a good beginning, doesn't it? They're going, wow, look at this Jesus guy. He's got some really interesting things he's doing. However, they were astonished and then look where they went with it. Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? So unbelief does four things. The first one is unbelief obscures the obvious. Notice they didn't say, hey, this man Jesus is talking crazy and he's pretending to do miracles. No, they say he's wise and he's working miracles. And they go, huh, wonder where that came from. Okay, wait, wait. He's wise and he's working miracles. Right? They're missing the fact that he is doing things that are only from God. Now, a little, a little note here is that these are the enemies of Jesus. And they don't go, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's not working miracles. They acknowledge the miracles. They acknowledge his wisdom. It takes scholars in the 20th century to come along and say, Jesus didn't work any miracles. That was all fake. Right? The people in his time saw what he was doing and believed what he did actually happened. So they just can't see it. They can't make the connection. See, even if he's a charlatan who's doing all these fake healings, the fact that he's speaking wisdom is enough evidence that he's from God. Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord only gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Psalm 37.30, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. 
And this tongue speaks justice. Ecclesiastes 2.26. For to the one who pleases God, him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And there's countless other examples of this. And so Jesus is speaking wisdom and they go, he is so wise. Which only comes from God, but they're not willing to acknowledge it. So why are they blinded? Why is it that they can't see the obvious? Well, we have an answer for this. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And here's, the, here's why they were blinded. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So it's not lack of evidence that's keeping them from seeing the truth here. It's love of sin. And this is, this is it. I mean, this is what our world has more pandemic than anything else that we've ever seen is that we love our sins and that obscures our opportunity to believe. Jesus tells us this and he, he exposes it. Matthew 12, when the Pharisees are saying, give us a sign, verse 39, he says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 16, he says the same thing. An evil and adulterous generation. He's saying, you are pursuing evil. You are pursuing a bride other than your God. That's why you want signs. You think that that will be what you need when in actuality you are evil. They loved their sin, and this is what caused them to not see what is obvious. Now verse 15. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So translate this. Wisdom doesn't run in this family. <laughs> Jesus' brothers and his mother and sisters don't get it at this point. Later on, we see that James and Jude eventually do. So what, do we, what, what is the argument that is being used here? Well, this is our second thing, is that unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. Unbelief focuses on the irrelevant. What does it matter where the wisdom came from? What does it matter that Jesus' dad was a carpenter and they know Mary? Truth is truth no matter what source it comes from. Spurgeon said it this way, Prejudice may say very wise in its own esteem, but it's really very foolish. To be prejudiced against a truth because of a lowly origin of one who proclaims it is the most manifest folly. And I love this part. Is a pearl to be rejected because it's found in a shell that has no value? Would not a wise man or woman pick up a diamond from a dunghill if they saw it flashing there? So what we see here is that Jesus is speaking truth and they go, yeah, well, we know where his family came from. We can't take this truth. Truth is truth whether we like it or not. No one was special in his family. His knowledge didn't come from the right place. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes who were like, hey, Jesus, you're not one of us. You can't be saying this. This is the same thing that the people that know Jesus the best 
are saying. 30 years with these people, and look at their response to him. Verse 57, and then they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. New Living Translation says they were deeply offended and refused to believe. So the third thing we see is that unbelief blinds us to the truth. Unbelief blinds us to the truth. That word offense is the word scandalizo, which is to be scandalized, to be, to be offended so greatly that you want nothing to do with him. See, they, it's not that they need proof. It's that they, they, they don't want to give up what they have. They don't want to allow Jesus to have a say into their life because they like their life. They have a wonderful plan for their life. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. John 1.11 said, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is not uncommon. The prophets were not received. Jeremiah's own family wanted nothing to do with him. But see, Jesus' family turns against him because they are blinded by their unbelief. So we should take heart here and recognize that there is no safe place in this world where unbelief can't get. It has gotten into families, it has gotten into churches, it has gotten into each and every one of us. The people of Nazareth had seen and heard, they had plenty of evidence, but yet they said, nah, we're not going to look at the evidence. In the end, Revelation 21.8 has a list of all those who will not be allowed into heaven, and unbelieving is right there in the midst of it. What a terrible thing to have Jesus in your midst and see him and deny. Verse 58, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he comes in, he's done some mighty works, he's speaking wisdom, and they go, yeah, we don't like where this came from, we don't know where you got it, and you know, we, we really don't want anything to do with this. And then who misses out? It's not Jesus, it's not the disciples, it's Nazareth. So the fourth thing we see is that unbelief limits the supernatural. Remember I said, to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is a supernatural act, it's a miracle in your heart. That conversion, that change from one direction to another. Man, if our world could bottle that up and sell it right around New Year's, there'd be billionaires if we could get changed that clearly. But the Bible says the only change that really happens, the only change that really sticks is when one becomes Jesus' child, becomes a part of his family. So Jesus did many miracles. Sometimes he did it for people who had faith. We've heard it say, your great faith has made you well. Other times, people were just there for the food. Remember when he says, you're only here because I make food come out. But the difference is, is that here in Nazareth, it's not that they, they don't have faith. It's that they are hardening their hearts to him and saying, we don't believe you. And they've had their opportunity, and now they're pushing him away. Their sinfulness has gotten in the way of the opportunity to witness the mighty works. Because of their unbelief, they miss the Messiah. Spurgeon again, and I, this is the last one, I promise. He said, oh, believe me, if you could roll all the sins into one mass, if you could take murder and blasphemy and lust and adultery and fornication 
everything that is vile and unite them into a vast glob of black corruption. They would not equal even the sin of unbelief. For the sin of unbelief is the monarch sin, the quintessence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes. It's the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It's the A1 sin. It's the masterpiece of Satan. It is the chief work of the devil because all sins spring from unbelief. Unbelief is rampant, but we must see it for what it is. This is not, oh, that's unfortunate. No, it's loathsome in God's eyes. It's not something benign. It's a cancer that must be eradicated. This unbelief is not just for those who don't claim the name of Christ. I told you earlier to, to be on, on lookout as we're going through. Because in the Bible, it talks about how unbelief is always at the door. It's the root of all sin. It's the root of our sins. Listen to what Hebrews 3 says. Take care, brothers. So this is to Christians. This is to people that know Jesus as their Savior. Lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So this unbelief is not something to be toyed with. It's something to be destroyed. So where you have unbelief in your life, where you have places where you are like, I'm struggling with this, take it to the Lord, let him kill it and grow new life in you. We must plead with Christ. Not because we're anything special. We plead for this help through Christ's death. We plead through it through Christ's merit, his good, perfect life, through his blood, through his wounds. We must plead with him. So I want to finish with a passage we read part of because we read the bad news, but we got to finish with the good news. Look at Ephesians 2 again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with he, which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Grace that you cannot earn. It's free. It's a gift. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean, look at Paul. He can't help himself. He's just going off and throwing out more and more words. He can't get enough words out there to show how great God is. This is where we must live. We must be in this daily, hourly. We don't effort it out through our own, trying to earn something that we could never do. We do it through Christ and what he's done for us. Because look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
through your belief. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's the grace of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We can never get over the belief in Jesus Christ. We can never get over his coming, his living, his dying, and his resurrecting. We cannot get past that. To be a believer, to be a follower, to be a Christian, to be a disciple is stuck in that moment. And what a moment it is. Someone as intelligent as the Apostle Paul cannot get past it. I love this morning I was reading in Romans and he's in the middle of this teaching and he can't help but burst out in song right there in the middle of chapter 11. Because the more he sees it, the more he gets it and the more real it is to him. If you're in Christ, you are alive. If you're not in Christ, you are dead. Which one are you today? Let the Lord speak to you and do a work with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. Thank you that, Lord, preachers are limited by words they can say and trying to express things with the correct amount of emotion and and enthusiasm, but Lord, we know that you are not limited by that, that your spirit is on the move, your spirit is working, and so I pray that you would work in the hearts of each and every one of us. Lord, do a mighty work in us. Help us to take our treasures and display them and share them with every person we encounter. And Lord, if we don't have those treasures, Lord, you are right here right now to give them to us. Lord, do a work in our hearts now as we worship you with song. In Jesus' name, amen.